It's time you turn your ideas into a reality with Squarespace. Because Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind or doing anything on the internet. Did you know you can do everything on the internet? You can, and Squarespace can help. Use their beautiful templates, use their 24-7 award-winning customer support, and do all that by heading to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also going to start this episode from an anniversary uh, that's right around when it's released, because this show comes out on Mondays on some time zones. It comes out on Sundays. So this would be coming out Sunday, April the 21st in certain time zones. And April the 21st is an anniversary for one of the biggest phenomena in world history that nobody ever really thinks about or ever puts their brain toward. When Benito Mussolini took power in Italy, right? Oh, you haven't thought about him in forever. Crazy. He made April 21st a fascist holiday. They decided that was the day that the city of Rome was founded. And Mussolini's whole program in Italy, it's something that the, the shortest way to describe their, their ideology is make Italy great again. You know, we're going to, we, we might be in the 20th century, but we're going to be the Roman Empire all of a sudden. That's what we're going to do. Sure, it doesn't make any internal sense, but it gets people fired up. And I think Benito Mussolini's Italy, this fascist Italy of World War II, is weirdly unthought about compared to certain other things in history and culture. In particular, oh, I don't know, Nazi Germany. That's something that uh, we did a whole episode about, basically. Me and Jason Pargin way back when talked about World War II in pop culture. Basically, every element of that pop culture focuses on Germany, or maybe it's a war movie in the Pacific. That's kind of the one other thing you get. But there was a third country in that axis. It was next door to Nazi Germany. It was fascist before Germany was. We're going to get into how that worked and why that's interesting. And more broadly, I think when we talk about current political movements, we are selling ourselves short if the Nazis are the only ones that we use as a comparison and a way to think about things. It is, as you know, very, very tricky to compare anything modern to this this past fascism that was going on. Uh, you don't want to be lazy about it. You also want to be very judicious about it and focus on specific, actual, factual things that happened. And I am very, very fortunate to have the specific guests that we have on today's show because they are two of my favorite people in terms of thinking about this kind of thing. One of our guests is Adam Todd Brown, your friend and mine, a longtime Cracked writer, and also he has his own uh, podcast network called Unpopular Opinion that's just fantastic. He also authored some of the first and best Cracked columns about the rise of Donald Trump, in particular one that compared it in very specific, thoughtful, and historical ways to Adolf Hitler's rise in Germany. And again, there's a lot of balancing to do when you do that. I think he does an effective job of it. He's also uh, been very predictive. The start of that column led with this very first sentence, quote, Ideally, time will prove me crazy and incorrect, but approaching the Trump candidacy as a comedy sketch that will never come true could potentially be the most tragic mistake this country will ever make. 
end quote. Adam Todd Brown wrote that in October of 2015, 2015. Uh, so he was very far ahead of the curve of a lot of things that uh, would go on. Uh, he, he described a rise that a lot of people were literally laughing at on cable news. That column's in the footnotes, along with a lot of other things from Adam. I'm so glad he could come on the show today. And then we have a new guest also joining us. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. She's working on a book about strongmen. She's also written all over and spoken all over about the historical phenomenon of these people. And in particular, Benito Mussolini, fascist Italy, this very specific time and place that, as we're going to talk about, is a lot more significant than I think the average American realizes. And most of all, we're going to get into why Italian fascism uh, seems to have not gone away. It kind of stuck around. I know that sounds insane. It is going to be very literally and directly still with us, as you'll hear today. I'm very excited for you to hear this episode. I also want to pause and do a do a real emotional left turn for one second to thank the audiences who came out to our live shows in Chicago, Illinois, and St. Paul, Minnesota. Like I said, emotional left turn. I'm very upbeat about these shows and, and just how positive of an experience that was. I don't know if you know that it snowed in Minnesota recently and snowed really heavily, but it turns out the Twin Cities are made of tubes connecting all the buildings. And more importantly, Minnesotans are just uh, very brilliant and tough people. We had a packed house at Amsterdam Bar and Hall in St. Paul, which is a great place. And Chicago filled up Lincoln Hall, too. It, it was just really wonderful to have people sharing stories with us because that always happens at the end of live shows and all our guests were amazing I think a lot of them didn't know each other going in they were just great together so enormous thanks to Ryan Asher Maya Dukmasova and Dr. Jane Daly in Chicago and also continued enormous additional thanks to Chloe Radcliffe John Moe and Dr. Elaine Tyler May in Minnesota in St. Paul and I, if I can thank one other group of people, it's folks in other cities. To execute a tour like that, we needed to promote it a lot. And I thank you so much for, for listening through plugs for that if you aren't near those places. Because uh, I know that can be a little irritating if, if you keep hearing it. And so thank you for being cool about that. Also, that kind of thing makes future touring more possible. And so uh, let me know on Twitter if you want to maybe see a show in your town. I can't promise anything yet, but that was an amazing experience doing this tour recently. And I hope we can do it again soon. Anyway, to continue with my just wild emotional swings in the show, we are going to get into this episode of things that are, I think, incredibly fascinating about past and present Italian fascism and what that means for us today. So please sit back or sit in any position that makes you uh, just fully ready to discover amazing things. This is like a history episode and a politics episode and a lot of other just fascinating things all at once. So I'm really excited for you to hear it. Please enjoy this episode of The Cracked Podcast with Adam Todd Brown and Ruth Ben-Ghiat. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. Adam Ruth, thank you both for making the time uh, for for past and present Italian everything. There's so much going on there. I feel like it's not talked about enough. I would agree with that. <laughs> that's that's for sure. And Ruth, in particular, you're a, a scholar of this kind of thing. I'm I'm always curious how people get into their particular field. What led you to to study so much of the the history and present of Italy? I grew up in California in Pacific Palisades, and there were a lot of oh 
exiles from Nazism. I, I didn't know them. I was too young. But I grew up like, hearing all these stories about these people who had to flee from Hitler. So I got interested in dictatorship and what happens to writers and creative people and they have to leave their countries and stuff like that. And then so when I went to graduate school, uh, somebody said, well, why don't you do Italy? Because there's hardly anything done on fascist Italy in this field. So I thought, I don't know. And then I went to Italy and I loved it. So I decided to focus on that. So that's how I got into fascism, you know, the history of fascism. And uh, unfortunately, it seems like it's getting coming back today. So it's, yeah. uh, these studies are very relevant. Well, and that, that's interesting to me that part of the, the draw of getting into it was that there's not nearly as much material on Italy as, as say, Germany. Um, I've always been very curious, like, why are we so fixated uh, when we look at World War II on, on Hitler and the Nazis and not on this next door ally of theirs? I, I don't think I've ever really understood it. Yeah, I mean, because Hitler, you know, organized and commandeered the Holocaust, it, it's he, he becomes the symbol of evil, which allowed Italy and Italians to become the lesser evil. And I thought it was really interesting to study because it actually, Italian fascism lasted twice as long as uh, Nazi Germany. And so you had oh, wow. an entire, yeah, 23 years. So you had an entire generation who grew up with all the different phases of fascism. And so for what I wanted to study, which is, you know, how people collaborate with a dictatorship, I thought it was more interesting to do for, for, for my themes, let's say. And fascism didn't go away to the same extent as Nazism did in Germany, right? There were always, I think in the years after World War II, there were always kind of fringe fascist groups in Italy that were still participating in elections and things. It wasn't the same thing as Nazism, where it was just everyone kind of agreed, okay, that was a bad idea. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, they never did a denazification equivalent in Italy, right. and partly because of the Cold War, because uh, the Allies wanted to keep make sure that Italy stayed on their side, and Italy had a really large Communist Party, so they also just decided to treat them like they were kind of the lesser evil, and they could be pardoned. But it meant that really fascism, in some way, didn't really go away. It kind of went underground. Above ground too, in many structures uh, that we'll that we'll talk about. But uh, uh, there's a lot to, I, I think, just get into in in terms of even the basics of Mussolini's Italy and this fascist Italy. Because like uh, a lot of the times on the show, we'll get into like these are myths about a thing, and these are the other things about them. I feel like the general public, there's a very limited number of things they think of with Mussolini's Italy at all. But one of them is this idea that ah, Mussolini made the trains run on time. He might he might have done a lot of bad things, but he was good at train schedules, which were <laughs> so important to people in the past. But it, it turns out that's not true, right? That's, that's fascinating. That I hate that because that's that's one of these myths. Because it's the typical like authoritarian modernization that the the only reason uh, that people think trains ran on time is that there were there were no strikes there were no unions you know Mussolini totally crushed oh. the labor movement and there was fake news right the whole bureaucracy that turned out fake economic statistics including like train delays you weren't allowed to report train delays and train accidents. Whoa. And yeah so so when we hear trains run on time there's like a whole bureaucracy of misinformation and repression that is behind it. He did actually make some trains run on time, but they were the ones that carried the tourists because Italy had a big tourist boom under fascism. Oh. So the tourists came back and said, oh, my God, the trains run on time. 
were late trains that much of an epidemic in the world <laughs> at the time? Like, I haven't right. taken a lot of trains, but I've never been that put off by how late they always are. <laughs> Right. Like even even the bar on you cannot report train delays like that. That just sort of exists naturally. Like nobody talks about that. But then I guess it was big news. And and then that's amazing that they censored it. In my research, I'm trying to look at sources from the time that people don't remember anymore. Like a really good source was this uh, guy who called George Seldes, who wrote a book called Sawdust Caesar. And he was a reporter for the <laughs> Chicago Tribune. He was no fan of fascism, and he actually got expelled for reporting news that Mussolini didn't want <laughs> reported. And he wrote like a kind of vendetta book after he left Italy, and he talked about all this stuff because it's hard to, wow. you know, you got you have to use a wide variety of sources to to realize, you know, the extent of the cover-ups there were. That might lead us into one of the, the few other myths about Mussolini's Italy, which is that I think people's general concept is that Mussolini was sort of a, a hanger-on second banana to Hitler in Europe, just kind of the whole way. And, and we already talked about how Italian fascism just lasted a lot longer. There's a Smithsonian article we will footnote in the show, but it describes uh, some sources in America when they were describing Hitler's rise in the press, they would call him a German Mussolini. Like that was the framing. Like Mussolini's this forerunner, this first thing. And then Hitler's just like a copycat of, of that, which I don't think people know how much Mussolini was part and parcel of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. They know about Hitler. Yeah, they're like Facebook and Twitter. They they both had their role in destroying the world. It's just that one came before the other one. Partly because there was this kind of stereotype of Italians as not as serious as Germans. Uh, there was this this idea that Mussolini just copied Hitler and actually it was the other way around for like 12 years. Because Mussolini came in 11 years before Hitler and Hitler sat there and, you know, watched him. And actually there's a very funny story where Hitler adored Mussolini and he was actually kind of nagging him. He was like a pest. He was trying to get an autographed photo and he kept trying to meet him. And Mussolini was like, who is this lunatic? I don't want anything to do with him. And it was only in like 1931, after many years of nagging, that Hitler got his picture. 31. Wow. The basic dates we have here, uh, if, I, if I'm understanding correctly, Mussolini does a march on Rome in 1922 and then gets to form a cabinet and run the government, then become a dictator two years later. But Hitler's beer hall putsch wasn't until 23 and he wasn't in power until much later. Yeah, exactly. I love that he wanted uh, memorabilia. That's very fun <laughs> to me. Is this right, Ruth, that the, the basic term fascism is an Italian invention referring specifically to Mussolini's style of things? Yeah, it's, it's from the, you know, from kind of the Latin, the ancient Rome, it meant a bundle. And at the very beginning, so Mussolini, you know, he, he had been a socialist and then he was kicked out of the Socialist Party. So he was nothing for a few years. He was just trying to f found this movement, but he didn't want it to be a party. So he called it the Fascist Combat Leagues. And in Italian, it's fasci. It's like a bunch of people. That's where the term came from, and then it became fascismo or fascism. Another myth that you brought up, which is such a thing to get into, this this myth that we hear today, too, the idea that fascism is from the left wing, that the, the left side of politics is the one that pushes fascism. It's good to know that Mussolini was kicked out of a socialist party before he became a fascist. That seems like it runs counter to that. This is a talking point of the right, 
And I had actually, I had thought that it was just the American right. Dinesh D'Souza and all these people are very dedicated to trying to make us believe that fascism was only a left-wing thing because national socialism, right? That's the name of the Nazi party. And, and unfortunately, you know, their agenda is very nefarious because their agenda is to try and blame all of the violence that came from fascism and Nazism on the left because they're always trying to say the left is a bunch of lawless, an angry mob, as Trump says in his tweets. So this yeah. is a very dangerous revisionism. And what they're trying to do is have clean hands for the right, well, the right wasn't involved in, you know, it, it seems absurd, but unfortunately, not only is it a big talking point in America, but the president and foreign minister of Brazil are also parroting it. So it it's clearly a kind of global right thing now. Yeah, I think, I, I think I've seen it as a literal meme. Like it'll be some kind of poorly photoshopped image macro on the internet where they especially pick out that thing of, ah, Nazi is short for national socialists. So surely the socialists are the Nazis, which is, which is just, I think, messing with terms. I don't think it's an actual fact, right? It's really oversimplifying things too. Just yeah. seeing the word socialist and be like, oh, that's the left. You really think the Nazis were on the left? That is a bold stance. Yeah. And then there's a whole school that says, well, look what they did. They, you know, they took certain ideas from socialism, like the idea of revolution, the kind of youth movement. But these movements got to power by killing, killing the left. Like their first targets were left wing people. And in Italy, yeah. if you were even a priest and you were a leftist priest, because there were them in Italy, you would also be killed. It makes me crazy, this kind of revisionism, because they don't, they're not, uh, they're just distorting history to serve their present purpose. Especially if I'm understanding that thing about Mussolini's origin, right? He founded uh, basically combat groups to violently attack people on the left. Is, is that how he started? Yes. The squad, yeah. the squadress. <laughs> and before he came to power in 1922, there were years of violence between the left and the fascists. So the idea that they're left-wing and the violence was left-wing is just crazy. Yeah, absolutely. This is a little bit of a sidetrack into more history, but one more myth here is a thing that has its own page on knowyourmeme.com, but it's the idea <laughs> that the Italian the Italian military in World War II was a hilarious joke, and they just uh, never did any effective fighting at all, and and were a total goof. In actual history, they were a military, right? They, they didn't win every battle, but there was a lot of uh, things they did. Like, the, they don't come up. When yeah. you talk about World War II, you never hear much about the Italian military. And I think I've never realized that until just now. Because in the, in, in the, I just, I know in the run up to the war, they conquered Libya, they conquered Ethiopia in the 1930s and used mustard gas and massacred people there. And there were over 225,000 Italian troops on the Eastern Front in Russia with the Germans. And they saw heavy fighting at Stalingrad. Like, it, it was an actual fascist military. It was a really scary thing. I don't know why it's a, a bit for people. It's a pretty absurd notion that any military is a joke. Like, if yep. any military shows up <laughs> and you're not a military, that's a problem. Like, you're not, it's not going to go well. Right. Yeah. And part of this, so part of this is uh, wanting to, this kind of, again, not wanting to acknowledge their own violence. And part of it's stereotype, the idea that Italians are lovers and not fighters, because in fact, they already had parts of Libya when fascism came in, but they'd never been able to expand 
past the coast in Libya because of the resistance. So they actually committed genocide in around 1930-31, and Hitler learned from this. They built these huge concentration camps in the desert, and they deported hundreds of thousands of Bedouin nomads and 500,000 animals, and they just locked them up. Why did they round up animals as well as people? It was like this population management that the right wing, that Hitler would do later, too. You, They wanted to completely disrupt this whole people because they accused them of helping the resistance because they were not uh. able to to fight the resistance. And so these poor shepherds and nomads were rounded up, and 40,000 of the 100,000 of them died. So they did that. And then during World War II, they, they occupied you know, Yugoslavia and Greece, and they co-administrated kind of it with the Nazis. So they were fully partners. And I've actually looked at the United Nations War Crimes Commission documents. They were charged with war crimes by Greeks and by you know, Yugoslavs and others. And they're obviously not fun to read, right? They're horrible to read. Yeah. And I actually did a comparison reading, and the Italians were acted, judging from these war crimes testimonies, they are almost as bad as the Nazis. In some cases, they were worse because they were trying to prove themselves to the Nazis that they were tough. So this is oh, all, man. yeah, this is all a big myth. And it's dangerous today because then people come around and say, well, we can support fascism. You know, what, what it means today, we can support these groups today in Italy because fascism wasn't that bad. Yeah, that brings us perfectly into today, into the the other thing that I, I think most people in the U.S. don't realize, which is that it's just fascism is just back in Italy and 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 maybe never really went away. Super back. There's there's so many elements of that we can get into. Um, one, I suppose, uh, we could start with those. Uh, I, I jokingly referenced to like above ground examples before, but uh, but Ruth, you've done amazing writing in the New Yorker about how uh, modern Italy is just packed with monuments and buildings built by the fascists celebrating fascism, and they're still around today. Yeah, there's an interesting story about that piece because I wrote it in the context of the debates here about Confederate monuments. And I wanted to explain, you know, why, for example, in Germany, though, they tore down a lot of the homages to Hitler and why in Italy there were so many of them left. So I published it and, you know, did a lot of research on the New Yorkers, you know, the fact checkers. It's an amazing operation. And two days after it came out, I woke up and there was a, an email from a friend in Italy. And he said that you're he said, you know, you're trending in Italy, but it's not in a good way. Oh. <laughs> so he, it turned out that this was a measure of the right, how much it's it's bloomed in Italy today. Because I was a foreigner and a woman also, coming in and talking about, seeming to criticize the Italians, this idea spread through the media that I was actually advocating for all of the fascist monuments to be torn down, like all of them. Oh, yeah. So, so there was an enormous social media campaign, and all of the major newspapers but one published several articles against me. I had thousands. I had death threats. I had thousands and thousands of, you know, social media attacks. And it went on for weeks wow. uh, because, and this was, again, it opened my eyes. And I know the Italian scene very well. I hadn't realized the extent of right-wing uh, hatred that was active. And this was six months before the elections that brought uh, this, the Europe's first all-populist government. So it kind of foreshadowed this. 
And it was also an interesting social media thing because the idea, of course, I'm not saying to go with a bulldozer and get rid of all these monuments. Like no one says that particularly in the States. They say individual statues must come down. But it was almost like a mass psychosis. And I was a perfect target because I was a foreign woman. So I, I have lots of, um, I, have, I have talks that I give showing some of the messages I got at the time. So oh, that's, wow. a, that's a story about that article, but it shows you that they're very attached to that. And the main one I gave as an example has an actual Mussolini quote inscribed into the building. So these are not just neutral buildings. These are buildings honoring Mussolini. But, you know, Italians, at least the ones who contacted me, uh, are very proud of this. They're not ashamed at all. To me, it was quite eye-opening. I was reading a thing recently that buildings in general are a big part of fascism. And especially in Italy, there's always a building that'll be occupied first. And it's like, this is our base now. And oh, uh, who occupied by who? Like the fascist activist type people? Yeah, there's a yeah. there's a group. Is it Copa Pound? Is that oh, Casa Pound? Casa Pound. That that was one of their first. One of the first things they did was just occupy this building, and Man. kind of declare it as their base. And if I recall correctly, they were kind of modeling that after what Mussolini did when he first launched fascism was it was a big deal to have a building and have a structure and take it over and this is our base that's amazing that's that's correct that's a great example and it's almost there's a lot of uh, romanticism and nostalgia among especially it's it's also women's young men and women but I would say particularly men like the original fascism for this whole notion of these groups and these rebels who came up and uh, you know, attacked the, now they call them the globalists. So they've they've also gone on expeditions against centrist and liberal and leftist media buildings. So you're right, that's a very good point about the kind of occupation wow. of space. And the big picture, which many Americans will be familiar with this, is that these groups like Casa Pound, and there's one called Forza Nuova, like, which is a totally fascist term, new force, they were oh, completely yeah. on the fringe. Some of them had been around for a long time. They were totally on the fringe. And what's happened is the fringes become mainstream. So, you know, like white nationalist ideology in the States, now it's become mainstream. It's even in the White House. But these are, this is how this works. And then these people, the founders of these Casa Pound people who, people took them seriously, but they really didn't have much of a voice. They were considered, you know, bizarre. Uh, almost anachronistic, and now they're 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 still small in numbers, but they uh, they are getting more space and more credibility today. Yeah, because if I understand correctly, Casa Pound is some kind of political party or some kind of activist organization. I don't know exactly what they are as a group, but it seems to be a lot of, as you say, Adam, occupying buildings, and then also this month, April, they protest. They did like a protest against Roma people being resettled near the city of Rome by burning cars and trash cans and stomping on food in a demonstrative way. They seem very, very scary, even if I don't know exactly what they are as an organization. It's like uh, an activist yeah. group. It's like a, okay. a club slash activist group organization, but it's not, it's not a political party. They, all these things, they want to evoke early fascism. They, they like to be movements, not parties. 
Yeah, mu uh, much like I suppose the alt right here or something like that. Yeah, very, they're yeah, they're very similar. They're where you go if if you want to be able to express your ideas freely. Like the same thing <laughs> oh, right. the alt right says here. It's like, well, let's just hear the racists out. You come to this side to do that. Right, right. Freedom of speech, the right. thing, the thing no one is opposed to. And. Yeah. It seems like, from what I've read, they've been around so long that they don't have as much power as they would probably like, but they've inspired other groups to kind of take that idea and run with it a little more successfully. I think what I'm getting at is they're not the only fascist group in yeah. <laughs> Italy. They're just like the early adopters of the more modern version. Like, first, we just had Breitbart, and then we got a lot of other websites yeah. Uh, in, yeah. in that vein. Well, and also, and in terms of these buildings they're occupying, also, it seems like constructing buildings was just a big thing for Mussolini and for fascism, right? Like, that one, that first building in, in your New Yorker piece, Ruth, if I'm pronouncing it right, it's the Palazzo della Civiltà Italiana, and it has an engraving of a Benito Mussolini speech about invading Ethiopia and how great that is. But now it's the headquarters for Fendi, the, the fashion label. And it's just a building in town. And many other apparently buildings and things are that way. Were they, was Mussolini just fixated on constructing everything he possibly could? Well, all dictators love infrastructure. The past ones and then the, the wannabe ones today. That's a good sign. Oh, yeah. yeah. Trump has infrastructure A whole week for week. infrastructure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And Erdogan in Turkey. And, and this is also because this is a way for their corruption. A lot of the Berlusconi and Trump are builders. They're into real estate. But um, in Italy, yeah. it's really interesting because Italy, if you've ever been there, your listeners have been there, it's a very dense urban landscape. And you have these gorgeous... You know, you take any one of those buildings from the Renaissance or, or, or St. Peter's and you put them anywhere else practically and they would be, you know, dazzling. But there's yeah. many. It's, it's a very dense landscape. So fascism needed to kind of prove itself. It was like kind of co competition for, for the landscape, right? So they wow. built a lot of uh, stuff in a very modern way. And that was fascism was famous for promising modernity because Italians felt they were backward or other people saw them as backward. So those buildings like the Palazzo della Civiltà Italiana, those were that was a whole area known as EUR, AUR, that was built. It's supposed to be the site of the World's Fair, and then it never happened because of World War II. But all of those buildings, huh. they're, they're beautiful buildings, some of them, and they're very... They're considered designer icons now. That's why Fendi is in there, because they're, they're quite serene to look at. So my piece was trying to say, well, the, I called them, you know, relics of a bloody imperialist wars. So Italians had a fit at that. Uh, when I say Italians, <laughs> I obviously mean only the right. They didn't yeah. like that at all because they get normalized. And so to have Fendi just move in there and treat them, as you said, like other buildings means you're normalizing all of fascism. I, I am right, right that it's a building with a speech about invading a country printed on it like that, that right yeah. like that's 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 as imperialistic as you can get i, I don't know how else yeah. To, yeah to blow that out my god observing that wasn't appreciated at all <laughs> <laughs> one other thing of fascism that's just around in modern italy is a bunch of actual Mussolinis in government, uh, not not just coincidental last name, but descendants. Ruth, when we'd been emailing before this, I brought up 
Caio Giulio Cesare Mussolini. I'm 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 sorry about all pronunciations in advance. Um, <laughs> but apparently you've you've emailed with him or with someone representing him because he was upset. Yes, it's Caio Giulio Cesare, so Julius Caesar. Thank and you. he is yeah. the great grandson of Mussolini, and he yeah. is a businessman, and he lived abroad. It was some months ago when there was just a little kind of leak or rumor that he was thinking of going into politics, and the the party he was going to choose is called Brothers of Italy, and it is of all the parties, it's small, it won't get, it doesn't get much uh, votes, many votes, but it's the most unabashed fascist one. It, it's like a lot of nostalgia people. Okay, and. And so I tweeted, oh, just what we need, uh, another Mussolini entering into politics, because there, there's his granddaughter, Alessandra, who's long been in politics, and there's uh, uh, Raquele. And unbeknownst to me, I guess he follows me, or he fa- saw it, so he emailed me. And I didn't open the email for a long time, because it just said, Cayo M., and I guess oh. he doesn't want to have in his, you know, the subject line doesn't want to have Mussolini. <laughs> <laughs> and and I again I'm not very popular in Italy. I get all kinds of mail from Italians. So I didn't open it for yeah, a long man. time. And then he he was very upset and he demanded a public apology because he didn't want to be judged on his name. So so we had <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough if if you weren't going to be in the far right party because it's it's true that he's lived abroad. Right. He's speaks three languages, he could be somebody who wants to be a different kind of politician, and then we shouldn't judge him on his name. So I, I had a little exchange where I was giving him the benefit of the doubt, but that's, uh, that, that phase is over. I think that that's also a pretty good sign that fascism in Italy doesn't carry the same shame that Nazism did in Germany, because it's not like Hitler was the only Hitler in the world during World War II. Right. And a lot of Hitlers changed their name after World War II. <laughs> like, I think at one point there were maybe eight, and then it went down to one. And right. uh, I don't remember, I think it was the New York City phone book. Like a lot of people named Hitler just actually changed their name to not be associated with that. But man, the Mussolinis <laughs> yeah, just embrace that's... it. Because that, that's that's three descendants we listed who all have the last name Mussolini, have not changed it. His great-grandson, Caio, and then Caio's second cousin, Alessandra, who's in the European Union Parliament, and then her sister, Rachele, who is a city councillor in Rome, who are just doing that. I'm, I'm trying to like give them some credit for possibly being nice people who happen to have that last name, but they seem to not be. And either way, there's no shame. It's amazing. You know, 25, 30 years ago, there was Alessandra, but she was, again, considered fringe and almost excused because this was her family. But now, yeah. uh, Caio Giulio Cesare just came out with a big campaign poster uh, where his name is hugely prominent. And both the name and there's a, a little saying on it, as there often are. And the saying is, history is the future of Italy. And the fonts. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, and I posted it on Facebook, and and the fonts are are very fascist era fonts. They're not. They weren't invented by fascism, but they're nineteen. They're cool. It's the same cool. <laughs> right, right. Because that's a very. Because the thing was that fascism was in Italy all through the thirties and forties and twenties, and so it was a very cool era era for design. It was the Bauhaus in Germany until Hitler came in. So a lot of the stuff yeah. that if you look at like fascist era graphic design and in advertising, it's totally cool. 
It's just was right. married to fascist ideology. So he's <laughs> his, he's he's very he's businessman. He's very smart. So he's using these fonts, but his name is huge, which is showing a great pride in his name. So now the climate is shifted to the point where he can be extremely proud of this name and run on his name instead of it being like, well, I happen to be a Mussolini, but I'm really a good anyway. Now it's like I'm good because I'm a Mussolini. So that's how far that's we've amazing. that's how far we've come. This is just in the last week that he he issued this. <laughs> Jeez, and yeah, I've seen that like what's happening in Italy now described as almost like a hipster version of fascism, which is why I feel kind of like what the alt right wants to be also is like yeah we're fascist but we're cool about it we're not racist and it's like yeah yeah you are. It yeah. seems like that's that's kind of the idea in Italy and the United States right now, that it's this newer, like more tolerant version of fascism, which I don't think is even a thing that could possibly exist. <laughs> well, the, the, it's the image, too. This is why, like yeah. Richard Spencer right. is, he does have the haircut sometimes. He doesn't always have that haircut, the fashy haircut. But he, he got some attention because he is well-spoken and doesn't quote look as fascist, you know. And by the way, though, when when the fascists in the 1990s, when Berlusconi did this experiment of the first center right, and he brought in the neo fascist to power, and their head was this guy named Gianfranco Fini, F I N I, and he okay. he was mainstreaming. He his uniform was aviator frames and a really beautiful Italian business suit. So he was like, I used to call him like a fascist yuppie. <laughs> and he, he did a lot of, but he was really smart in kind of mainstreaming it and getting, and he didn't like it when like his members of his party would go and, you know, wear black shirts. He tried to get people to stop doing that and stop looking like thugs. So oh, wow. that's the 90s. And then, uh, and then they were also in power during the early 2000s. But now we're like 20 years later and it's this new figures like Caio Giulio Cesare who are very respectable Inter- he's an international businessman because optics and social media are so important, right? So they're, they're going to yeah. take advantage of that. Because that also that ties into some of the prior things we were talking about. And by the way, I am so sorry you get so much online venom sent your way. That's terrible. Uh, but it, it seems like the fascists are very into occupying buildings and also occupying all of social media and inboxes. Like uh, they're they're really, really on top of that. And it seems like it's not even that new. It's just a new platform. It's just the price of doing business. And it depends, you know, if they're polite and they just have a differing view, that's one thing. Anyone who's on yeah. social media gets gets things like that, male or female. But uh, it's just how it is if you write about these things. It's certainly not going to stop me from writing about them in the future. If there was a crowd, we'd do an applause break or something. <laughs> that's great. Many thanks to Squarespace for their support of the Cracked Podcast and their potential support of you. Yeah, this this sponsor is here to help you because you could use a website. Maybe it's for yourself. Maybe it's for a new project or thing you're doing and, and have coming up. Maybe you just want to put your photography out there. Boom, a hobby I'm guessing you maybe have. But maybe you have other hobbies that you could also celebrate with their own website. The answer is yes, you can because the possibilities are endless. I also want to talk to you about Squarespace's support for mobile. 
basically the whole internet is being used on tablets and phones and, and other mobile devices now. We have metrics at the website crack.com that tell us how people are seeing the site more and more every week. It turns over to being mobile devices. If you still use a computer, hell yeah, you're awesome. But also the other people are awesome too. And they're moving into a sort of new futuristic way that things are done. The thing about a Squarespace website is it is optimized for mobile right out of the box. It will work in that setting right away. That's something you need to have in this time, and you'll have it with Squarespace. You will also have 24-7 award-winning customer support. You'll have an easy time buying a domain, so you have exactly the name for your website that you want. Because Squarespace empowers millions of people to turn great ideas into something real. So head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com cracked. Offer code cracked. And then in terms of the other people going on, it's not just people with the literal last name Mussolini. We've got a lot about the current Italian government and also about the world of soccer as well, because that tends to be a, a place where a lot of this vibe and politics is being expressed in a surprising way. I don't know what to get into first. Maybe maybe soccer. Maybe that's a good time. Yeah. I wrote about this recently because uh, March yeah. Madness just happened. And, and and you podcasted about it very well, too. People should check it out. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. In, whenever March Madness rolls around, I, I'll, I tell people I'm taking the week off to watch basketball, and there's always this, you know, they're exploiting the players, though, right? Like, how can you watch that? Or, right, like, right. football, you get weird accusations if you watch football these days. But oh, then yeah. the World Cup rolls around and like Santa Monica becomes Little Manchester. I can't <laughs> even go there. It's like there's an Oasis concert happening and everyone loves soccer. And it's like soccer is a human rights disaster. Yeah. Like there's the there's slavery being used to build the World Cup stadiums for 2022. But also Italy, there's so much fascism in soccer in Italy. And it's so blatant. To me, it, it makes me feel better about where we are in terms of the, the fascism scale in the United States, because you can't go to a Lakers game and start an anti-Semitic chant and just have hundreds or thousands of people join in. Right. You can do that at a soccer match in Italy. It happens all the time. Or it's, it's or it's news in the US when one guy at a Utah Jazz game says racist things to a player. Right. Like one guy, it's it's a story and everyone's on the player's side. Right. And with Italy, it's there's a specific type of soccer fan called an ultra. Yeah. Which ultras I believe just started out as like really devout soccer fans and just over the years, this fascism element kind of crept in. It doesn't happen at every soccer match, I assume. I don't watch enough soccer to know. <laughs> but there were there was one particular incident that happened in December 2018, where it was Inter Milan versus Napoli, I think, were yeah. the two teams. And before the match started, there was a riot in the parking lot where one dude was killed. He was run over by an SUV. And I think four other fans were stabbed. Mm -hmm. And then the game went on. They still <laughs> held the match after that. And at one point, fans started making monkey noises at 
black players and like there were these anti-Semitic chants that happened. And it's yeah, like December of 2018. Right. Yeah. Months ago. Yeah. Months ago. <laughs> and it was one of like three or four just horrifically racist things that happened in soccer that month. And it's not just Italy, like the Chelsea Football Club, which is in England. Yeah, it's in London. It's in the right. middle of a major city. There's yeah. a section of their website dedicated to discouraging their fans from participating in anti-Semitism. Like, it's a huge problem. And when it's talked about, people are like, well, it's just a reflection of society, though. You know, there's so much fascism in Italy and you see it in sports. And it's like, yeah, that's a problem. And that's what I think is lacking, not lacking is the wrong way to put it, but missing from what's happening in the United States so far is it's not that ingrained, widespread kind of thing where you can just up and start being a fascist at a sporting event and everyone around you will go, me too. Right. Like it's, it's still, we're not that far gone yet. I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, that's an, it, that's an excellent comparison. Yeah. Thank you. It's a, it's a rampant problem there. I wrote yeah. a very long article about it on Medium if people want to. But it's not yeah, just link. about yeah. the the fascism thing. I think the Daily Beast, they have a great article about fascism in Italian soccer. Yeah, because that article breaks out a lot about especially these ultras you mentioned, which are it's an extremely organized fan group for a team that we we don't we don't totally have that in the United States I think for any sports there right. are, there are a few apolitical soccer fans And soccer clubs. has two there's hooligans which right. we already know are just people who like to fight they just love and then there's fighting. ultras who like to fascist fight right <laughs> which is crazy to me and the that daily beast article it interviews uh, an author named Tobias Jones who's writing a book about them who claims that until about the mid-90s, these ultras just loved soccer a whole lot, and they were just apolitically maybe fighting each other about soccer. And then they started adding fascist and anti-Semitic stuff. Uh, many of their headquarters have portraits of Mussolini in them, if they're Italian. And he says that it's it's a reflection of, of this overall society, but it's also an extremely strange phenomenon. Like that fight you talked about with the Milan-Napoli game, it was because people brought weapons to the parking lot to fight. That yeah. was that was the, the goal, and that's sickles. how it went. Yeah. Pruning yeah. sickles. Oh, God. Yeah. Who just that's, has those? Yeah, I, right. <laughs> it's like it's like on old communist flags, right. I think, and <laughs> it's about it, you know, medieval times. Yeah, yeah. that's about it. But I, I think that um, it's not just a reflection of society. It's It's been an avant-garde. It's been a place where, uh, for a long time, violence, both, both hooligan type and ultra, it's been tolerated, and there are cultures that young men in particular grow up in, and they, they see, they go to these games year after year. And, you know, this now it's spread into the streets outside of the stadium. Even the British right, like in earlier decades, it, it was always linked to being accepted inside the stadium. It was rotting and no one ever did anything about it, but they, they've kind of been the avant-garde and, and set the tone for some of these things that now we're seeing outside the stadium. That's interesting. So it's like it's yeah, it's the forerunner of a lot of the politics and the and the action in cities is they're they're expressing it through their soccer fandom, a space where things are just a little different. Because also, as you said, Adam, there's racism kind of across European soccer. There's practices of people throwing bananas onto the field at black players. There's practices of doing uh, monkey sounds or whistling at black players. 
also FIFA, the world's least responsible sporting organization, they had a task force to stop racism and ended it in September of 2016 because they said racism was, uh, they, they just did it. They, they took care of it. Uh, Problem solved. Yeah, they, you know, they knocked it out. But they haven't because it's very bad. You had this fight specifically with the Inter-Napoli game where one person is killed. And Adam, if I remember right, the killed person was one of the pro-fascists. Yeah, he was one of the the pro-fascists, and I reference in the article, there was a local politician in that area who basically his, his only complaint after the game was that, well, you can't go to a game and get killed, which is a valid concern, yeah. but so much more happened that needed to be addressed. <laughs> and he was just like, oh, a fascist died. No. <laughs> and it, it was a weird look, if nothing yeah. else. If the sources are right here, it was Matteo Salvini, who is now yes. the, the deputy prime minister of Italy and in many ways the leader of the country. He tweeted, quote, in 2018, you cannot die at a football match. At the beginning of the year, I will convene the leaders of, and supporters of Serie A and Serie B so that the stadiums and the surrounding area will once again become a place of fun and not of violence, end quote. So he very deeply Charlottesville Trump said, it is sad that that the there was violence on both sides and, and right. we will fix it. But yeah, right. this, is, this is also the man. He's a huge problem, Salvini. He's like Mussolini, you know, 21st century. And he's the yeah. same person said, quote, we need a mass cleansing of immigrants street by street, neighborhood <laughs> by neighborhood. So he does, he is a law yeah. and order person, and he does, I'm sure he does want to clean up the stadium so people can go there and have fun, but he, he's very selective in who who he wants to protect. That quote, it was, he wants he wants a mass cleansing street by street? He said street by street, neighborhood by neighborhood. So if, if I understand Italian politics right, he and two other guys are kind of a coalition chief executive sort of thing right now. Is, is that right, Ruth or Adam, if, if either of you know? It's a coalition government, and the other, the the Five Star Movement has the prime ministry, and he's the deputy prime minister, and he's the league, head of the league, which is a, it used to be the Northern League because it hated Southerners, but now it's like we're in the nationalist <laughs> populist thing, so they took Northern off, so now they just hate everyone of color and immigrants. And he, he's yeah. very, very successful at using social media and... Uh, being kind of one of the boys, he's he's a very effective uh, candidate. He's a very effective politician. Yeah, he uh, fascists are always good at branding. Yeah, that's that's the problem. <laughs> the league, the that's league. such a cool name. Yeah, that's a pretty cool name. It's pretty good. Yeah, like how has no? <laughs> that's just been out there for anyone, any anyone on the left to take forever. Could have been. Hey, we're the league. It's not, yeah, it sounds like a, a dance crew or something. Yeah. It sounds they, really good. They were so extreme that when they were founded back in the 90s, they were at part of this right-wing coalition that Berlusconi did, and they wanted to have the North secede from Italy. Uh, Whoa. Yeah, they wanted to have a republic of, of certain northern areas because they hated, and they, they considered the South at starting, like south of Florence was just Africa. Oof. Know? So they, oh. <laughs> they, their, their roots are very extreme, and they're extreme in a 21st century way now with Salvini. Because that that's just a, a basic thing about Italy that, that maybe not everybody knows. It, it seems like there's a strong divide between the north of Italy and the south of Italy, which doesn't remind me of any other country. But, uh, you know, 
Yeah. How do they differ? Yeah. It's the geography. It's a very, very interesting country because at, at the bottom, well, you have Sicily, which is close to Tunisia. And at the top, you, you, oh, have, yeah. you have an area, Alto Adige, or the South Tyrol, which is bordering you know, with Austria. And then you have uh, the Istrian areas, which gets into the Adriatic. And, so it's, uh, and, and you have a border with France. And then the rest of it is just surrounded by water. So it's a very long country. And it, again, it's near Africa. It's near the heart of Europe. So the North and the South have very, very different histories. Also in, in the World War, they have a different history. So there's a lot of regionalism. Uh, in yeah. fact, when Mussolini came to power, only 30% of Italians knew Italian. They all knew dialects because their regional identities and local identities were so big. And that's why he invested in cinema so much, like film propaganda, because they couldn't read. Oh. <laughs> So, so they've <laughs> always been. It's, there's always been a big divide, but now it's kind of weaponized by Salvini, by the League. It was weaponized, saying that Southerners are, are dark-skinned, and so we don't want them. And now he's trying to be Mr. National. The target is now foreigners of color, immigrants. So prior to taking power, Salvini was all about how various chunks of the country are are not good enough. And then now that he's in the power structure, it's all it's all nationalists. It's all everybody's everybody's yeah. on the team. The league itself, when he dropped the northern from the title, he had to do that to make it a national party. So it's evolved. But it's always been it's always been racist. It's just who the who their targets were has changed. Were there any reasons besides race that the north of Italy, at least people in those parties wanted to secede from the rest of it? Was it was it just uh, an ethnic thing? It was largely that, but it was also that they said that the North was more efficient, it was richer, and they didn't want to be uh, paying the burden of the poor South, and there was issues with taxes. They thought that Rome was just a very inefficient bureaucracy. There were, there were all kinds of reasons remained. And, and it's, there are interesting continuities with that because now it's directed to the EU, like, oh, we don't want to be part of the EU. We want to, you know, we're nationalists. We don't want to be governed by this bureaucracy. So there are things that have, I haven't done a study of it, but there are things that have, like, come along and are the same in a way. And the Salvini guy, we've got other things he's he's said and believes. Uh, apparently, on Mussolini's birthday last year, Salvini did a tweet where he did a Mussolini-style slogan about himself. In a pretty intentional way, he tweeted, Tanti nemici, tanto onore, which means so many enemies, so much honor. The Mussolini original is multi nemici, molto onore, which means many enemies, much honor. And he did it on Mussolini's birthday. It, it feels like he is not uh, particularly ashamed of a connection to the guy. Uh, would, would that be accurate, Ruth? I, I don't know if that is, but... Very. It's and he... Okay. He plays it up. So Mussolini was very famous for showing off his, his body. And he was the first ruler to strip off his shirt and be shown half naked and a lot of times <laughs> in newsreels and photographs. And no one else did that uh, in the entire 20th century. Like there was one shot of Mao swimming in the river in the 60s. And then Putin revived it, but Salvini's revived it as well. And it's like oh. this this use of the body to show that you're approachable. He even had a, he even had a picture when he broke up with his girlfriend. She she I think it was on Instagram. They were like literally lying in bed, and she's covered, but you could see his chest. And he didn't have any Whoa. problem. Yeah, and then he's at he the was beach. Instagramming that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was her her. She did it because they were breaking up. 
So even the breakup was public. So there's this kind of idea that you're approachable to the people. But he's, he's definitely channeling Mussolini. I mean, he has, again, no other politician goes around with no shirt, you know, on um, like that. <laughs> he's also said that uh, Putin's economics fill the Russian people with pride. And Salvini said that Trump is brave and has been consistent since Trump was elected. And it, there seems to be a wave of these folks all at once that people have noticed and reported on it. I mean, how similar is it to that that wave in 20s, 30s Europe when suddenly uh, we had several fascist governments going on? Well, there is a kind of contagion that comes on. I mean, I think it's, I'm calling them in my book, um, I'm writing a book on strongmen, and it goes from Mussolini yeah. to Trump. And Salvini, he's, he's not a f- featured because he's not the head of the government, but who knows by the time the book comes out, he may well be. So I'm calling them the new authoritarians because I don't want to use the word fascist because they're not trying to have a dictatorship. You don't need to have a dictatorship anymore. You, you keep a semblance of democracy like Erdogan does and Putin. There are a lot of similar yeah. tactics, though, for sure. They all try and legitimate each other. And in the case of you know, Trump and Salvini and Putin, they really are trying to have a new world view. Like they're trying to destroy liberal democracy. They're trying to destroy the EU and probably NATO and have this kind of new order, which is very scary. So yeah. in that sense, they're, they're all connected. The older ones, like Orban and Putin, actually mentor the younger ones, like Salvini. Oh, boy. So it's not, it's not, it's not good. <laughs> yeah. It's not good it's, for the cause of democracy. It's all over Europe. It's not, I mean, like Hungary... Isn't it uh, Austria also elected a guy? Uh, Kurds, I think is his name. Kurds. Uh, yeah. Chechnya. Sebastian Kurz. Yeah. Kurz, yeah. Oh, in Brazil. We mentioned Brazil before. Now they have a guy. Yeah, he's, he's, he's yeah. extremely scary, Bolsonaro. But Sebastian Kurz is interesting. He's only, he may be 32 now. When he got in, he was only 31. He's a chancellor. And he's, oh, he was always described as center-right. But then, I think it was last year, he makes this statement and he said he calls for a, quote, axis of the willing between Hungary, Italy, and Austria. And he uses the word axis. This is to answer your question. Is it like the 30s? You know, so for an Austrian, (laughs) an Austrian head, the head of Austria where Hitler came from, to use the word axis is not subtle. So these people are not at all subtle, but he's still considered, he's not considered a far-right politician. He's considered a center-right politician. But at that point, what is the difference if you're evoking the Axis? And all of those nations were collaborationist nations. They all allied with Hitler. And with a lot of these people, too, because in in looking at Mussolini things, it looked like one of the things during his rise was that media, especially in the United States, covered him as either silly or centrist. And then a lot of these current people get covered the same way. I I don't know why media is so bad at picking this stuff out or calling this stuff out. Maybe they're just afraid of being seen as biased in some fashion. I've, I've never understood it. My personal opinion is, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to continue doing what they're doing or there's going to be a big cost. And I have, I've written a lot about this for CNN. You know, you need to, bullies only understand the language of force and confrontation. I feel that what Jim Acosta of CNN does, uh, standing up to him, and using his media platform, he's so well known, to yeah. confront Trump is essential. In fact, at the very beginning of Trump's rule, when he told a, a journalist to sit down, he, he likes to humiliate people, as we know, and he told a journalist to sit down. 
I hoped that all the journalists would stand up. You have to you have to show him that you have professional solidarity. That's one of the lessons of dictators on the rise. If you show him that he can't get very far because he'll be turned back, he will change his tactics. And instead, everybody was. It's partly because of respect for the office of the president, and not wanting, as oh, you yeah. said, not wanting to be seen as biased. But it's a huge mistake, and it's continued on. And now we have another chance with the 2020 election, and I'm worried that they'll make the same mistakes again. As we look at the U.S. and Italy, it seems like maybe in the U.S. it's a little trickier to cover properly, just because. They're not directly referencing a a time when the country was fully fascist and and run by people of the Mussolini last name. Like, is it is it? Uh, it makes me curious why Italian politics and a lot of Italian people can be so casual about this stuff because it's it's so directly holding a fascist party in front of a fascist monument, maybe with a Mussolini descendant there. Do you have any insight as to how they can be so casual about it? It's just part of the country's history to a point where, and, and this is something that angered a whole other group of people about the, when I, in this article I wrote for The New Yorker, I pointed out how the center-left prime minister, Matteo Renzi, who was young and dashing and, you know, had no, certainly no fascist sympathies. He was a man of the center-left. Yeah. He gave a press conference. This has to do with sports. Italy was trying to get the Olympics. It was making a bid for the Olympics. And he gave a press conference in the former, the fascist former sports academy site, which is full of mosaics of squadrists, those famous uh, statues of muscly, you know, marble young men. It's, it's a total fascist relic. So he sits uh. in there, which you could say, okay, that's the sports. It's still a sports academy. But... Where does he sit? He sits right underneath a huge painting of Mussolini being acclaimed <laughs> by people. And it's as though Ang- Angela Merkel sat underneath a-, a portrait of Hitler at an international press conference. She wouldn't do Who would do that? Right. But, but Matteo Renzi did it because that room has always been used. And there was another left-wing politician who did it. This isn't a good example of how normalized it just is. He didn't probably think twice about that Mussolini is right over his head. It's a huge painting, if you look it up. So at that point, we can't only accuse the right of this problem we have today. It's a larger problem of normalizing fascism uh, and sending messages like that. I mean, really, Merkel would never sit under, no one except the right wing would sit under a portrait of Hitler. That's just inconceivable. We'd all freak out, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if anyone would even be in a room or building with a portrait of Hitler. Yeah. Because what's that doing there? (laughs) Yeah. Unless it's a literal museum. Right. And and think about what does it mean that Fendi is every every day they go to work in this building that has the, the imperialist slogan of Mussolini carved into it. That's just for my from my point of view, that's not okay. And it's a bigger problem than just Casa Pound. So that's what right. I, that's what I was trying to point out uh, in this article that wasn't appreciated by. Anyone. <laughs> <laughs> but can you imagine every single new, like every newspaper? The equivalent of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, everyone published horrible pieces against the article and against me. 
So it was like the establishment. Every every Italian paper, not every the, news, the ones yes. in the U.S. No, yeah, no, no. Sure, no. sure. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> but it was like the establishment was kind of closing ranks and didn't want to hear this. And I think the thing about Renzi sitting, announcing the Olympics bid under with Mussolini's face above him, it hit a nerve. But it's part of the same problem with yeah. sports that we've been talking about too. Well, yeah, and you and you mentioned that New Yorker piece that. German neo-fascists have this struggle of all the Nazi stuff's been taken down. We have to do our gatherings and stuff at like their specific rock concerts and things they do, (laughs) which just isn't the same. I feel like in the U.S., maybe we have a better and worse situation than that Italian situation where we are conscious of the like Confederate stuff and are trying to take it down or trying to move it into museums. But then at the same time, in a situation like Charlottesville, they'll gather under a Thomas Jefferson statue because he owned slaves, but also he was a president. And what do we do? It it seems uh, like the murkiness hurts us there. You know, denazification forced at least some Germans to reckon with it. And Germany was a bit of a pariah state. And then, then of course, it got Marshall Plan aid, but it had denazification and Italy didn't have that. There was no discussion until now, really, about... I'm not an expert in American history, but I feel the reparations discussions, as limited as they are right now, uh, the idea of them is important. But a lot of what we're seeing in the States, it's it's marrying... It's very scary because it's marrying this new global rights stuff because all of these groups in the States are also, you know, in touch with other ones. Uh, And then there are these elected officials like Steve King. He's not doing well now, but... He's a major liaison yeah. to European racists. Then there's all of the, the people who are returning to the, the tricks of voter suppression and uh, the churches burning in Louisiana. There's a lot of stuff coming up through actions and behind the scenes trying to, you know, say we're clinging to this, you know, racist regime, which some, some historians have talked about that the South was a kind of authoritarian regime. They've used that framework to look oh, at yeah. it, wow. which, which I find I'm not an expert on that, so I can't say much more about it, but I find it, it very. And one of the things I have actually found, I've studied Europe my whole life, yeah. uh, even though I grew up in the States. And I've looked when Trump came on the scene, I started looking at him and the GOP and the campaign things when, for example, people would say, call for the death of Hillary Clinton. And I said, you know, that's that's what you do in military dictatorships. That's what you do in authoritarian things. And so it's been very interesting to take this framework of of European authoritarianism and apply it to what's going on today. And you you see things in a different light when you do this. So a lot of my writings have been about like the authoritarian playbook. That's which I wrote before the election, which predicted what Trump would do. I wrote a lot of pieces predicting what he would do based on this frame of authoritarianism. So I think that Trump is leading us to uh, see our own history in a different way, even as it's some of the worst parts, as you guys have been discussing, are coming, they're, they're coming back, even as some statues go down, there's other things that are coming back. People are clinging on for dear life. And now we have a white nationalist in the White House but it's also an opportunity to see our past in a different way. Especially in terms of the way we draw on that past, it's it's amazing to me learning that Mussolini drew so heavily on the Roman Empire. Yeah. That's 
thousands of years ago. That's so lo- that's so far back. And he uh, and apparently he uh, even got that fascist symbol from a, a Roman bundle of sticks symbol. That uh, like like all the ancient Romans are gone. I, I don't know if I'm breaking news to anyone, but. Uh, <laughs> But that, that was his go-to, right? That was what he wanted to do. It's the mirage of empire because yeah. that's what Rome excelled at. Because they also had the Renaissance, they had artistic. And so the, the fascists also did a lot of stuff with the Renaissance. But Mussolini wanted to conquer territory abroad. And so like Libya, where the Romans were in Libya, they're amazing like oh, yeah. ruins. So Libya, it made sense that Libya would be further conquered, like completely conquered. So it became this rationale for imperialism. And it also made Italians, some Italians feel very proud. So when Mussolini occupied Ethiopia, uh, which was a League of Nations member and he used mustard gas, the whole thing was completely illegal. Uh, and and genocidal. But this was his peak of his popularity because he declared empire. And so he had actually done it. He'd made an empire for the Italians because, you know, he said the French and the British have them. Why why can't we have them? That's another difference between what's happening with fascism now and the past where there's not that imperialistic tendency to it. I think it's more of a, well, we can all have our own little empire here by just kicking everyone else out. Like, have you thought about that? Instead of (laughs) maybe going and taking other people's land, maybe you just kick out the people who are there and take their stuff. Like, I've talked to people on the right about, you know, kicking out immigrants. And the argument is always, well, well, they're just going to have to find somewhere to go. And it's like, okay, but if you had your way, every country could hate immigrants and kick them out yeah so then where do they go and the answer is i don't know they'll have to figure out where to go it feels like this wave of fascism has more of a let's just reclaim everything that we see as ours and kick people off of that instead of fighting actual physical conflicts and taking land which yeah interesting i don't know is that better (laughs) yeah it's 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 actually this um it's like a counter-revolutionary thing. You're going to, you know, <laughs> suppress the left. The war is inside your own country. And in fact, right. Trump may want to have a war with Iran, so never say never. But yeah, the border sure. becomes, you have, if you're, if you're an authoritarian, you have to have an excuse to militarize. You have to have, like ICE, the ICE is almost like a paramilitary now. It's, yeah. it's, it's his paramilitary. It's very bad. And the border becomes the zone that, he can have his little war on. And right. and he needs that. They all need that because they can't keep consolidating their power and being repressive if there isn't an enemy and there isn't a militarized space. So his he's not going to be Mussolini going and conquering Albania. He's going to, you know, do it at home. And uh, so we're going to see huge changes, certainly by even before 2020, if he's allowed to activate some of the things he wants to do including deporting, you know, then it's green card holders, then it could be naturalized uh, immigrants, as my parents, right? And some people even talk yeah. about having, you know, if you're, if you're like someone like me, if, if your parents were not actual citizens and born here, you could also be subject to deportation. So wow. obviously we hope none of that happens, but 
that's, that's what Adam was saying. This is the kind of strategy. One of the scariest things I think Trump said recently that didn't get, probably because in the same speech he talked about buying a dog, and that was kind of the narrative uh, after. People were like, oh, how funny is that? The old dog gambit. There we go. But yeah. He was talking about this backlog of immigration and asylum cases that are pending right now, which I think the number is 900,000. And he was talking about how, oh, they say we need to hire judges. And you can tell he went off script when he said this. But he goes, and by the way, we have the best law enforcement in the country. We know where these people are and we're going to get them out of here. We just have to change our laws. So that was him saying, Ugh. well, we're going to just deport those 900,000 people. We're not going to hire more judges. And everyone was like, but the dog, he said he was going to buy a dog. <laughs> Man. And it was so disappointing. That sort of implies that that's been talked about and maybe kicked around as a potential solution for this because right. it's a legitimate problem. There is that backlog of immigration cases that need to be dealt with. But I don't think up to this point anyone's been like, have we thought about just deporting them all? It's terrifying. Well, and then and then his friend uh, Salvini in Italy in 2018, uh, Salvini said that he wanted to turn, quote, words into action on the, the Roma population there. Uh, he also said uh, he wanted an answer to the Roma question, is how he phrased it, and then uh, wanted to do a registry of Roma people, which apparently Italian uh, legal precedent says you can't do. Uh, he also, in a TV interview, said, quote, unfortunately, we will have to keep the Italian Roma because we can't expel them, end quote. It's wild that national leaders are saying this stuff. And, and what can what can the media do uh, better to uh, cover this stuff in the way it should be covered? Maybe the answer is just call it call it authoritarian. But, but it I'm trying to is, think of yeah. other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been really interesting. Uh, there was a fear. So it certainly wasn't just me. There's also Sarah Kenzior and David Fromm and different people were using the A word during the campaign. But is it, it's authoritarian, right? Authoritarian. Because once you once you frame it like that, I, I really think you have to be prepared for the worst and you have to assume the worst. And I don't mind being an alarmist as long as you also have remedies. Like you said, what can the media do better, right? Right. Um, I mean, certain things have to do with his propaganda. You, you have to stop retweeting him. You also have to take him seriously. And stop, you stop amplifying his, his propaganda by, re, you know, circulating it. But it's hard because his uh, M.O. is to just flood the media space with so many scandals and so many insults and outrages that he wants you to, to not focus on the big picture. It's what Adam just said. Everybody focused yeah. on the dog <laughs> and not yeah. on this very terrifying proposal. So there has to be a, a focus. But it's clickbait, Right. That, that's yeah. a big problem. So, I mean, there are huge discussions about what media models to use now and what to do. Jay Rosen, my colleague at NYU, is very active with, with this. It's a big question, but I'm glad we're, glad we're talking about it because that's already progress to talk about it. There are, you said so many, like you say, remedies we can do. And I, yeah, I feel like maybe one big one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make more of a habit of not retweeting or comedically dunking on the latest silly scandal out of there. Because like you guys say, I think it really puts turf over the, the stuff we actually should be watching. Yeah. Great. I would say watch Trump's speeches. I watch every rally, every speech he gives. You can find it on YouTube. 
Yeah. Watch it. Like that is the president of the United States in his element. That is Trump at his most comfortable. You will never hit Trump is the most transparent president we've ever had. You just have to <laughs> yeah. decode what he's saying and what his motives are. The first hint I had that we were eventually going to be in Venezuela at some point, I read a New York Times article. I think it was December 2017, maybe even 2016. And there was just a thing at the end where they mentioned that Trump was concerned about the human rights situation in Venezuela. And I was like, wait a minute. He's never worried about the human rights situation anywhere. What what is happening in Venezuela right now? And that sent me down a rabbit hole. And I've done like six podcasts since 2017 about we will be in Venezuela at some point to some degree. If we don't send our own military in, we will be advocating for some other military to go in. We're not there yet, but it feels pretty close. Just pay attention to Trump. Like, don't pay attention to what everyone tells you about Trump. If you just pay attention to him, things make more sense and it's easier to see where he's actually headed. Don't listen to either side. Just listen (laughs) to him and form your own opinions. And if you still come out of that wanting to vote for Trump, you were always going to vote for Trump. Yeah. The raw material. That also, there even might be a sneaky strategy in there of pay attention to when he says something that sounds good because it's probably, there's probably some motive there. There's something like he cares about infrastructure because he doesn't want us talking about the the settlement for Trump University or something like that. Yeah, and and everything he does is designed to keep himself in power and further privatize his public office so he can make profit. He's got a great setup. The other thing is that, um, to end on a particularly gloomy note, um, when Michael (laughs) Cohen, when Michael Cohen was testifying and he said that, he knows Trump and Trump isn't going to leave office quietly. I think he's right. Yeah. Once these guys get into power, they don't want to go. Also, he's making a dynasty because they've got it's it's too good of a deal they have. The taxpayers are paying for him to circulate his brand and all of his visits to and they're able to just throw away conflicts of interest. Jared is doing enormous damage that's going to take decades. He's giving sensitive intelligence, you know, reportedly to the Saudis. So they have a really good thing going for Trump organization. He is not going to go away easily at all. We we have to be mindful of that. And I think one of the if people want to know what to do, you know, work for voter registration, you know, volunteer or give money to places that protect our elections, because the elections what gonna is what's going to do it. I am also a big supporter of nonviolent protest. Like when, when citizens mobilized, like remember the health care when there yeah. were people in the halls of in front of the Republican lawmakers offices and at their town halls and they were literally running away from their constituents. You, you yeah. have to mobilize and be out there to show not just Trump, but the elites who are backing him that you're not going to stand this for this anymore. He's trying to set up a dynasty where Ivanka is rumored. They keep dropping, doing optical hints that Ivanka will be the next president. And then he talked about Donald Trump Jr. Because they they don't want to wreck this great chance they have to bilk as many people as possible. And I, and I like the idea that there are so many of us in numbers who don't like it. There's things we can do. 
<laughs> what a time to be alive. Yeah. Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Adam Todd Brown and Ruth Ben Ghiat for opening up the past and present of Italy, a country that uh, I think a lot of us just don't think about very much. It turns out it's incredibly fascinating and uh, relevant to everything. To me, I, I hope it's relevant to you too, because that was the show. And in this show's food notes, you will find the Twitter accounts for both of these people, Adam Todd Brown and Ruth ben They're both great and are often tweeting about the very latest of these things happening. Like, I know more about Brazil's president because of Ruth. I know more about uh, the most recent soccer fracases because of Adam. Uh, they're, they're really great to follow. Additionally, tons of sources and pieces and other things we drew on, especially a piece in The New Yorker by Ruth about her experiences living in Italy and also seeing all these fascist monuments around, such as the headquarters of Fendi with a speech carved into it about invading Africa. It's 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 mind boggling and nuts and and really wild. And beyond all that, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Their new album, Budos Band 5, is available now on Daptone Records. This episode was engineered by Sam Kiefer in L.A. and Jared O'Connell in New York. And then it's been edited together by Chris Souza. Special thanks to Matt Apodaca and Ashley Warren for helping us put it together. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media, a space where, as we said, descendants of Mussolini will just get into it with you and demand apologies uh, as if they have any leg to stand on. It's a really wild world we live in. My own Twitter account in this wild world is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitzagram, and I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. It's got my free, fun, and occasional email newsletter of 10 things you will just like. So if you want to sign up for that, you'll be all set up with fun things once in a while in a way that makes you happy. And I am happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.